Let me pray. We'll get started. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that you give us um, the book of John, that you give us this account of the most important, single most important event that ever happened in the history of the world. Um, And thank you that we get to be eyewitnesses through um, this beautiful story. Lord, um, I pray that we are changed by it. It's not just history, God. It is is transformative. And it is is ever living. And so, Father, thank you that you you leave it for us here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Hey, man, I'm glad to be back. It's been, it's not, that's not a cool vacation. Sometimes you have to... um, you have to step back, and I'm really glad that I get to be here with y'all. I know that Becky and Dawn were um, just a blessing, and I got to listen in and, and be that guy at home, you know, listening to all my ear, earbuds and taking notes, and it was really fun, but I'm really glad I'm back. Um, I wanted to share a couple things with you. I know um, a lot of y'all are wondering where I've been, and, it, you know, I wish I could say I was on a real cool beach for like a month just hanging out, but that's not the case. My kid... Um, my oldest son had, so those of you that were in our study last semester, you probably know that he had a real, he races for his college, for, for Baylor, he races mountain bike, and he had a real severe accident and broke his face up real good, it's fine now, and, and broke his arm up real good, and um, had to have surgery, well, he, the plate that they put in broke, and there's an infection, so we've kind of revisited all that, and that was not my plan, right? Anybody been at a moment in your life and you're like, this was not the plan? Hey, this was not the plan. Um, and God laughs. Ha ha, his God laugh. Um, it was not the plan. But I thought it was interesting um, that this week while I'm sitting in the hospital with my kid, and um, I'll show you a picture in just a minute. He, he has this real gnarly, cool scar from the first surgery, and then um, they had to recut. Same scar. And it was hard, you know, it's really hard to watch your kid go through that and, and see that big scar, you know, as a mama. If, if you're a mom, you understand. If you're not a mom, I'm sure there are people in your life that you get to um, love on in a way that you love them so much that when you see them broken and you see, see a wound and you see a scar that it just reminds you of a story that's hard, right? And so then as I sat down and I was working through my homework and dealing with all this, I'm like, oh, Lord, you're so cool, you know, that I'm sitting here looking at the scar on my kid, and I'm thinking about the scars on our Savior's hands when he came back. Scars that he didn't really have to even have, right? I mean, he's God. He could have cleaned that stuff up. But when he reappeared, he came back scars and all. And I love that about our Savior because he uses these wounds to remind us that he understands that scars tell a story, right? Um, I'll sh- Shelly, you have that picture. I'll show you my kid's scar just so you can get an appreciation for that. It's legit. There's my hand. You can see me. I'm like, my scar. Um, but it's cool, right? Because it tells a story. And we tell him all the time. He's 18. We're like, man, this is just part of the story. This is part of the story that's going to allow you to point back to Jesus. That's going to allow you to point back to that time that you were broken and you were healed. It's going to give you this opportunity to always point back to the story. And so I think about um, our Savior, and it's no coincidence that we are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and the hands and feet of Jesus are scarred. Amen? Scarred and wounded and redeemed and risen 
All of that is what scars are about. And so this week, last week, Don shared with you about the single most important day, right, in the history of the world, a day that um, essentially walked through um, all of the different things and the histories and and the overlapping stories. But really, did she, I don't know if she mentioned this, but do you know that that day satisfied over 700 Old Testament prophecies? Over 700 it was not a coincidence that everything went down the way it did. It was the day that um, he took his last earthly breath, our Savior. It was the day that the curtain ripped from top to bottom and the thunder rolled like our girls saying to us today. And now we step into the risen Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today is the responses that John records to the risen Christ, the scarred, risen Jesus. So Turn with me, if you would, to John 20 and 21, and we're going to go through that. Um, I I love this section of Scripture. In fact, I told this story in the evening class. It was funny when I knew that I was going to have to miss being here. All I wanted to do is this was like my favorite thing to get to go through with y'all. And I was like, Lord, please just don't let me miss this week. And so he gave me that, and so I'm really happy to be here with y'all. When we look at this section, I know we talked about a lot of different things. You talked about... um, the foot race, right? Those silly Peter and John, you know, racing to the tomb. We talked about Mary Magdalene, and we're going to talk about her more. We talked about how Jesus appeared to the disciples those three different times that John shares. But what I want to do here with us in this time that we have is I want to look at the responses. I want to look at the way that three folks responded to this risen Jesus, this Jesus standing with scars in front of them. And and I want you to think about it this way, and it may feel like a reach, but hopefully by the end it won't. I want you to remember that those three people that we're going to talk about today are you, are me. Do you realize, did you see yourself in the story? Mary Magdalene and Thomas and Peter, all of them have these traces of us. And so as I went through this, that's all I kept thinking was, oh yeah, man, I get that. That's me. You know, it's real easy for me to get irritated at some of the folks in the Bible, especially Thomas. Like, come on, Thomas. Okay, but wait, Chris, that's you. And so as we go through this, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about, are you Mary, Thomas, and Peter? And at the end, I'm going to read a little something that that I wrote that was because they are me, essentially. So let's take a look. We're going to look at these three characters in this Bible section today. We're going to look at Mary and how she was listening and looking for Jesus. We're going to look at Thomas and how, remember, he was doubting and touching the scars. And then we're going to look at Peter, our sweet, precious, bless your heart, little Peter, leaping into the water and then feeding sheep. The first we're going to look at is Mary. In uh, chapter 20, we get to introduced to Mary. We've heard from her before. Do you remember? In the end of chapter 19, I think it was verse 25, We see her name listed where? Where was she? She was at the cross. There was three Marys that are listed at the cross. Mary, Jesus' mother, his aunt, and this Mary. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about who she was, a lot of rumors, and a lot of things that are not based on what we know to be true. What we know to be true comes from this. Everything else is speculation. And so I'm going to hit this hard and fast, and I'm going to try to give us exactly the truth and facts that we know about her and what she meant to, her, to the story of Jesus. In chapter 20, I'm going to read the first couple of verses as we first introduced to her after the resurrected Christ. Has, is, is, um, the, the tomb is empty now, and then we're going to see the resurrected Christ. So follow with me, verse, chapter 20. 
Verse 1 goes like this. Now on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, okay? On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Who's that? John. He never refers to himself by name. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And now we do not know where they have laid him. And so what happens next? There's like a foot race back to the tomb. We're going to skip that part and we're going to move down to, to verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. This is after, after Peter and John had arrived at the tomb, right? And she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting when the body of Jesus had, where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. Verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they, have t- where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And then he said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Can I push pause? Why is there a gardener? I don't even understand that. Is there landscaping? That was a weird word to me. I thought, shouldn't we have translated that differently? Like the gardener? I don't know. Maybe somebody knows. Come tell me later. I didn't look it up. Okay. Let me find my last myself. Okay. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And then it happens, right? Verse 16. Jesus said to her, what? Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he has and that he had said these things to her. There's a bunch of things we know just from this passage about her. Here's what we know is fact. Number one, we know that she's referred to as Mary Magdalene. And what I want to clarify is that's not necessarily a surname. That's referencing where she's from. She's from a fishing village called Magdala. And it's a tiny little place. And it's like, if you want to look on a map, it's like south southwest of Capernaum. And Jesus had done a lot of ministry there. He had done a lot of exercising demons from people, which sounds really creepy and crazy, but I'm going I'm to explain a little bit more in just a minute. And so that's where she's from. So we know that about her. We also know that there's no mention of family or husband. And we also know that she arrives early and stays late. So that means that she probably doesn't have a family to take care of at home. That's, that's just kind of a guess. She's mentioned, are you ready for this? 14 times by name in the New Testament. All except for one time, she is listed first, which matters. Five times her name is mentioned alone. What what does that even mean? It means that she had utter devotion as a follower. You know, in the time, the culture at the time did not revere women, did not treat women in such a way that, that they would have listed her by name, let alone a woman that didn't have a husband. And yet God honors this woman. She's part of the story. And what we'll find in a minute, she's one of the most important people in the story of Jesus. So we know those things about her. What, what we also do not have any reason to believe is that she was a prostitute or had any sort of... Um, of, of, of life that, that, was, that was that sort of sinful life. A lot of people have inferred that, but that's not in God's word. 
So we don't go based on the assumption of what men would say. There's no evidence of that. We do know in Luke 8, 2 and in Mark 16, 9 that Jesus cast out seven demons out of her. So we know that her past was rough. Anybody? Anybody? Seven demons? That's rough. Well, the interesting thing, when I started looking into that, I'm like, that's creepy, man. What does that even mean? Well, I'm not going to go all deep into that, but I do want to clarify a couple of things. When Jesus is healing from um, or exercising demons from people, and he does it a lot in the other gospel books. We don't see it much in in John. We don't see much discussion about it. Think of it like this. I thought this was a great definition. Demon possession was really an affliction, not a sin. Okay? We don't see anything in God's word that says people that were afflicted with being possessed by evil forces or evil things were sinful. They were victims. Okay? I think it's important for us to realize that, that they were tormented people. They were not willful participants. Okay? That they were victims with ruined lives. And when Jesus goes into this area, and we, you can see it if you go look in the other gospel accounts, he goes and he, he, he deals with many people that are dealing with this affliction. And he rescues them from a, from a fate that certainly would never have been able to be rescued from if it weren't for Jesus alone. So that's, that's significant when you think about Mary Magdalene. Because now the other thing we know about her was that she was one of the many who provided for Jesus out of her own means. We know based on Luke 8 that she followed him. You know, when we talk about the disciples, there's the 12. But, but a lot of times we use the word disciples to just pretty much mean people that followed And she was one of them. In Luke, she was mentioned along with some other people who had actually had demons exercised from them. All of a sudden, they're in, right? Because they know and they've experienced the transformative power of God with skin on. That's who Mary Magdalene is. This matters to her. He changed her life. He changes your life and he matters, right? Well... Not only do we know that about Mary Magdalene, we also know verses um, John 19.25, I mentioned before, she was the last at the cross. She was the last one there. And promptly thereafter, she was the first at the grave. She was present at his burial. Matthew 27 tells us that. Mark 15 tells us that. And she arrived at Jesus' tomb early Sunday morning. And we see here that it was before it was the sun had even risen. And, and know this, um, because of Jewish law at the time, the Sabbath day, which would have been that Saturday in between, they couldn't go to the grave to mourn and be there because that would have been breaking Sabbath law. And so she came as soon as she could come. Last at the cross, first at the grave. Another cool thing about, about Mary, and I found this um, title for her over and over, is that she was the first herald of his resurrection. Do you know what that means? She was the church. She was it for like a minute. She was the church. She was the only one. I still am overwhelmed by the fact that the first person he appeared to once he was risen was Mary was a woman that was afflicted with demons that followed him around and gave everything she had, and she was a woman. In the moments before anyone else saw, she was the church. 
She saw the risen Lord, she spoke with him, and she later reported the encounter. Now, something that's interesting, a lot of people that get um, apologetics driven about all this, like, what's the proof? You know, what's the proof of this? And how do we know this really happened? Let me share something that, that kind of blew me away. You know, um, the followers of Jesus have often been accused of faking this whole thing, right? You've probably heard that, I'm sure. But something that you need to remember when you consider that, um, that, they, that they would have stolen his body from the grave and then hidden it and, and, all, and all of this, if people really believe that let me ask you this question would they have chosen a woman like Mary Magdalene to be the testimony that said Jesus had risen no you know at the time women's testimonies were not even often admitted into court when there was legal proceedings in those ancient courts early Christians if they were making up a story about Jesus's resurrection would not have likely had a woman especially one with her history as a primary witness why would they do that only God would use Mary Magdalene as the primary witness. The fifth thing about Mary Magdalene that we do know is this, that she went back and heard what? Heard her name. And that's how she knew who he was. Remember in John 10, John 10 verse 3, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. John 10 verse 4, the sheep will follow him because they recognize his what? His voice. John 10, 27, my sheep will hear my voice and I will know them and they will follow me. I just think about her and I think about all the things that this woman has been in. And in this moment, she is standing there and she hears her name. She hears her name. I love this. Um, I sold this from somewhere. I don't know. But I thought this was just such a perfect way of, of laying it out, what Mary Magdalene means to us, the Marys sitting in this room right now that are facing the risen Christ, and we have to make a decision with what we're going to do with that, right? The disillusioned, weary world that waits in the upper room demands an authentic witness, a credibility that love alone provides, the world must see our salty tears and must sense our breathless hope. They must know that we are not simply vain, clanging symbols in the den of modern life, but we are heralds of another person, the one for whom we long and in whom we dare to hope. If we fail to account for the joy that is within us, then we will have failed to proclaim the risen Lord. We have to be the heralds. We have to be the ones. That's what Mary was. Are you Mary? When you hear her story, are you her? Are you listening and looking? Are you breathless and tear-stained because you're running back to tell everybody about Jesus? I, I want to be her. He's calling your name. He's calling my name. What are we going to do with it? Mary. Well, there's another response to the risen Jesus. We see John walk us through, and now we get to meet little precious Thomas, little bless his heart, little precious boy that he is. Um, it's interesting. Thomas, when I look at me and I think about who I am, I am most often Thomas. That's a confession I'm making right now. 
I most often am Thomas. I'm most irritated at Thomas. Don't we do that? We're most irritated at the people that we are most alike. Ooh, that's scary truth right there, but it's true. I am most irritated at him sometimes, but then I am most often him. I am doubting and questioning, and I'm doing the whole, are you sure about this, God, kind of thing constantly. For the last three weeks, I've been, are you sure about this in God, all up and down the plate. I've been, I've been asking him all the time, are you sure? This is not really your plan, right? That was, that was, I'm a better planner. And God laughs at me. And that's who Thomas is. He's doubting and he's touching those scars. I thought of, um, as, we re- as we go through this account in, in John 20, I thought of a couple of questions, honestly, that, um, that as I'm reading this, I'm like, okay, God, I, I don't even understand. And then he kind of answers them. And so I'm going to read John 20, verses 24 through 29 to remind you of the story of Thomas. And then we're going to go through those questions Verse 24 starts like this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Remember, we're about to talk about the second time he's appeared to the disciples. So he, dis- he appeared to them before in a locked room. Remember, they were all hiding under the chairs and stuff. And he came in and, and Thomas, I don't know what Thomas was out doing Thomas things. He wasn't there. We have seen the Lord, they said. And this is our little sweet little precious Thomas. But he said to them, unless I see the hands and the marks of the nails, and I place my fingers on the marks of the nails... And I place my hands in his side, I will never believe. Anybody ever said never? I've said it about a hundred times. I'll never have a puppy. Don't say never. It's just God just laughs. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them this time. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, he grabbed that face, didn't he? Put your fingers here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed and sit in chairs in Flower Mound, Texas. I add that last part just so you know. Thomas. He needed to see and touch, right? So I asked, like, God, why, why did you include the story of Thomas? Like, this is, seems kind of messy. Why is it even in here? Why Thomas? Well, this is what we know about Thomas from God's word, that he was loyal yet pessimistic. Loyal yet pessimistic. We can relate to him, can't we? He asks the questions that we wish somebody would ask. And I, I would venture to say the other disciples in there hiding under the table were probably wondering the same thing. They want to see the scars. They want to touch the scars. But maybe they didn't want to be disrespectful enough and be rebuked by Jesus. I, I don't know what they were thinking. But Thomas says what we're all thinking. In John 11, you know what? I, I went back and read about Thomas. You may not remember this and you may remember it. He was ready to die with Jesus. Do you remember when they were talking about going to Jerusalem and, and all the disciples were like, no, they're going to kill you. And Thomas is like, let's go. That's Thomas. He asks the questions that we would be scared to ask. God has purpose in Thomas asking these questions. God has purpose in Thomas's doubt because I believe certainly that his doubt led him to a sharpening of his belief. I know in my life, when I have been Thomas a lot of the time, my doubt has led me to a sharpening of my belief. It's led me to, it narrows the course, doesn't it? It's like, all right, this doubt has led me to this place where there's only one answer. 
Well, what did Jesus do when Thomas, our little doubting, precious little Thomas, is like, let me touch your hands and let me touch your side. What did Jesus do? He lovingly met him at the point of his weakness. He got down in the doubt with him and said, touch my hands. You know, did you ever think of the fact that Jesus didn't rebuke him? He didn't say, he, he referenced the fact, don't, don't be a disbeliever, I want you to believe. But he never said, shame on you for not believing that this is me. He honored and loved him in his doubt. That's me. He does it every, every day. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus does in response to this doubting Thomas. Well, we move on and I start thinking, I'm like, well, we always call him a doubting Thomas. Shouldn't we call him a seer and a believer? Because honestly, once he saw, he believed, did he not? John MacArthur puts it this way, and and I had never thought of that. That verse 28, it is a key verse when you read it. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. This is what's important about the words that Thomas uttered in that moment. Thomas makes the greatest confession a person can make. He declared in that moment his firm belief in the resurrection and therefore the deity of Jesus Christ. No one to this point, this is the first profession of someone face to face with Jesus calling him God. No one has yet. But our doubting Thomas. His doubt led him to a sharpening of his faith. Why should we even believe that this little event happened? It kind of goes back to the thing that I said before. Like, if you were going to retell this story and try to convince people to buy it, you wouldn't have sent Mary Magdalene to be the messenger. Amen, right? You would have been like picked somebody that looked a little better and was a little more cleaned up and a little more accepted, had a little PR, gave a good spin. It wasn't her. Same thing here. You think about this. If we were faking this, if the disciples were faking this entire account, would they, would they have portrayed themselves as scared with, behind a locked door. I think they would have portrayed themselves as like Jesus' you know, counterparts with like capes flying in the wind or whatever. They wouldn't have portrayed themselves this way, and they certainly would have, wouldn't have portrayed themselves as doubters, questioners. But yet they did because this is true and this is real and we can relate to it. John 20, 29 says this, A time's coming. When tangible, touchable evidence will not be here, we have this to go on. And that's why we are left with the story of Thomas, because we are Thomas. Are you? Are you Thomas? Doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is often the sharpening of faith. What you believe about Jesus, like Thomas, is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing about who you are. Thomas knew that he was Lord and God. Do we know the same thing? Well, um, the last dude I want to talk about is Peter. Our little Peter. Darling little Peter, right? Like precious Peter. Um, You know who I think about when I think about Peter? I think about Forrest Gump jumping off a boat. Lieutenant Dan, Lieutenant. Do you remember that? Go watch it. I'll post it on Facebook or something. That's who I think about. Like in this last chapter, verse chapter 21, it's pretty much Peter's, Peter's finale, right? We get, it, we get to find out what happened to Peter. Well, chapter 21 of John, last chapter, is often referenced as like an epilogue. Do you know what that means? That's like pretty much the story ended with the last verse in 20, and then we got this add-on thing that kind of seems like it doesn't exactly go with the story, but it's almost like tying up loose ends, Okay. 
That's what chapter 21 is. When I did a little research into it, I wish we could go into all of this, but essentially there's like one, two, three, four, five, like five questions that, that chapter 21 answers, and I didn't make a slide, so y'all have to listen to me. Um, there's five questions, and one of them is the, we're going to really key in on, but I just want to hit them really fast. Um, chapter 21 addresses this question, will Jesus no longer provide for his own? That's the question, right? All of a sudden he's gone, so what does this mean? Verses 1 through 14 answer that question. And what about the future of the disciples without their master? Verses 18 through 19 address that specifically. Was John going to die? Do you remember that conversation between Peter and John and Jesus? And he was saying all that. And it was like there at the time. Let me give you the reference. Verses 20 through 23 address that. There at the time there was this misconception that John was going to live forever. And Jesus clears that up right there. Another question that was often asked and addressed in chapter 21 was, why wasn't everything Jesus did recorded by John? Do you remember that? Because there weren't enough books to encompass all the words. Verses 24 through 25, there is no way on this earth we could write it all down. Well, the last question that, John, that chapter 21 answers is, what happened to Peter? If you'll remember, the last thing we see about Peter was, you know, not only did he deny the Lord three times, right? But then he had a foot race to the tomb and he and John were, I don't know, they're so goofy. They're like kids, but first one in and that was it. And so what's interesting is if you'll remember back, he had the title as the rock of the church. If you remember back from the very first chapter of John, verse 40 and 42, Jesus renamed him to Cephas, which means Peter, which means rock, And he's saying, you're going to be the rock on which my entire church is going to be built. Now it's making sense. Now it's making sense because now Jesus is not physically going to be here. And so who's going to be here? His ragtag group of 12. And Peter is going to be the foundation. And so we have to answer these questions because otherwise the church would be like, wait, that guy? That guy's the one. And so chapter 21 really addresses Peter. In fact, if you keep going in the New Testament, the next chapter is the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is basically the, the church. It's basically how the church goes out and becomes this worldwide church that, that we have today. The first 12 chapters, Peter is the star of the show. And so if John hadn't addressed Peter and where he ended up, Those first 12 chapters and all that was going on in the new church might have been questioned a little bit. And so remember, what did we learn about in the very beginning? Like you're going to have to totally like draw back for a minute. Um, When did he write this? Well, he wrote it several years later, like 50 years after the encounter, right? So think of it this way. So actually the Acts of the Apostles was like already happened by the time John wrote this. So he had this great perspective of being able to go, hey, you know what? That's that's a hole in the information and I need to fill that hole. And so I'm going to share this information about Peter. Does that make sense? Chapter 21 ties up the loose ends about our guy Peter. Well, what we know about our guy Peter is he leaps in the water and he, and he gets called on to feed some sheep, right? If we're going to put it mildly. Well, there's a lot of things we know about him already as we approach these two jobs that he has. We know, as I mentioned, he's the rock of the church. He's the foundation. We know that he was a denier. Remember Jesus said three times you're going to deny. And he said, I am not. Three times, right? Three times. We know that he's a fighter. 
In John 18, verse 10, he had this misplaced love and courage for Jesus. Remember when they were trying to take him away, what did he do? He pulled out that sword, chopped off that ear. He was trying to control the plan, wasn't he? I felt this last couple of weeks like I pulled out a sword and tried to chop off a few ears myself. But Jesus always has the plan. Sometimes we just have to go along with the plan, even if it doesn't seem completely logical at the time. Amen? And that's our Peter. He was a fighter first, a thinker later. He was a tomb raider. He got in a foot race with John. I think that, I'm going to say this. This is just my opinion. This is not biblical and not truthful in any nature. It's just my opinion. They had like a little bit of a competition, didn't they? I see that often. They're funny, those two. Anyway. I'm going to ask him about that when I see him face to face someday. But in chapter 20, they raced back to the tomb, didn't they? How beautiful, though. We goof around about that, but they loved him so much that when she came and gave him that information, all they can think of was their Savior had risen. Well, in chapter 21, we get into the leaping fisherman part. We get into the uh, Forrest Gump jumping off the edge of the ship part. That's who Peter was. Think about this for just a second. In the beginning of John, in chapter 1, where did we first meet Peter? Do you remember where he first called him to be a disciple? What was he doing? Fishing. He's a fisherman. And where do we last see Peter at the book of John? He went back to fishing, didn't he? In verse 3 of chapter 21, he says, I'm going fishing. Well, we don't know why at this point. If he went, if he, he took six more of the disciples with him, we don't know if this was a disobedient thing, if this was a, okay, I'm done. I don't know what's going to happen now. I'm going back to what I know, which maybe it was. It may have been, it may have been an obedience thing. We have to go provide in the midst of everything. We still have to make money and provide for those followers that were all hunkered down together. We're not sure, but we do know that it's very descriptive about where he was and what he was doing. Also consider this. He's a professional fisherman, right? So I'm going to take this, I'm going to take a leap. I think Linda was the one that pointed this out. I, I'm, I'm going to guess that they probably weren't only fishing off of one side of the boat. Anyone? I mean, anybody been fishing before? I mean, I'm terrible at it. I'm terrible at it. But I know for sure I wouldn't just fish in the same spot over and over. So the odds are good that they probably were fishing the whole boat, right? But then what happened? Jesus had a plan. I love, I love that about our leaping fisherman, that he chose this obedience to be, okay, well, we'll fish off this other side. And then all of a sudden, he realizes, once John recognizes him, that that's Jesus. And so what does Peter do? He jumps off the boat. He's impulsive and enthusiastic. That's Peter. He acts first, sometimes thinks later. Anyone? Don't raise your hand. The impulsive people are like, yes, me. It's cool though, right? Because God knows this about our Peter and he's going to use this in the ministry that's going to share the gospel with the entire world. I love the fact that not only do we see Peter leaping off, you know, he's getting, putting his robe back on to leap into the water. Again, just very confusing to me. That and the gardener I'm very confused about. But jumps back in the water, enthusiastically gets over there while the other guys are pulling in the fish and they haul them back over to the, to the shore. And then Jesus does what? He feeds them. What does he feed them? Fish. Bread. Do you remember in, in chapter 6 when he fed the multitudes? Well, now he's feeding the multitude feeders, isn't he? He's taking care of his own. Well, then we see that they go for a walk. And, uh, and Jesus tells him that I need you to feed my sheep. He says it three times, three slightly different ways. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it. I know you already read it, but I do want you to recognize something. 
When the word love is used, Jesus asked him, remember three times he asked him, do you love me? And Peter's like, duh, yeah, I just leaped off a boat for you. No, the cool thing that I never knew was the, the word love that Jesus uses when he refers to Peter and asks him the question is a fully encompassing total commitment love. The word love that Peter uses back to Jesus is an emotional love that you would have for your friend or for um, someone that you, you dearly love. It's an emotion-driven thing. Jesus and Peter were using two different words. Three times he asks him. Three times he tells him, I need you to feed my sheep. Well, enthusiasm and feeling won't feed sheep, will it? Total commitment to Jesus as your Lord is what feeds sheep. The thing I love is that that this critical new commandment, this is where everything hinges. The modern church, the church that follows after Jesus ascends to be with his father at the right hand of God forever and ever, this is the moment that all of it hinges on. Is he's telling Peter, the rock of the church, now it's your turn, man. I've been feeding you. I've been feeding the multitudes. Now it's you that has to feed I love that. You know, I love the fact that not only does he expect this devotion, this love that's all-encompassing, but he knows about Peter and he knows about how excited he is and his enthusiasm. And guess what we know about the end of Peter's life? You know what we know? Not only did he go on to be the rock of the church and lead all of these different disciples out into the world to tell people about Jesus, but he did this. He wrote two letters to scattered Christians to encourage them later in the New Testament. And you know what else he did? You know how he died? He was hunted, imprisoned, and crucified, and he hung upside down and died. And you know why he died upside down? Because he said, I am not worthy to die like my Savior. So he died upside down. That's Peter. He's jumping off a boat, and he's feeding sheep till the very end. Are you Peter? Are we Peter? I'm not Peter enough, guys. I'm just not. In spite of failures, do you leap first and sometimes think second? Like Peter, Jesus handpicked this leaper to feed the sheep. I love that. Are you Mary? Are you Thomas? Are you Peter? I don't know. I just know this. I know I can be. I know I can be them. And at the end of um, writing this, this Bible study, when I did, I wrote these letters because I started thinking about it like, Chris, you are Mary and you are Thomas and you need to be Peter. And so I wanted to share with you the letter I wrote to myself. And I want to read them fast because we got a couple minutes and then we're going to go get our kids. So just bear with me. I know it's kind of goofy. If you want to take a nap, take a nap. It's fine. Um, but when you think about yourself, ask yourself, do you relate to these characters? Do you relate to these folks in how they responded to Jesus? Me, number one, Mary Magdalene, the one I want to be. Dear me, number one, you love deeply and you mourn with understanding and endurance when others are struggling and avoiding. You weep when you must and you don't care if your makeup runs. To you, there is no shame in what you value because you know where you've been and the muck that he has lifted you out of. A snapshot, a little glimpse could never tell of what you've actually endured. A passing by in the grocery store aisle could never fully expose the ugly story that you have lived through. And yet, here you are, in the hardest of places, 
enduring and suffering well, willingly, before the sun even rises. The first one in line, right where you need to be in order to hear your name called, what if you were hiding like everyone else? What if you were avoiding the tough situation like everyone else? Turning away from the pain just like you used to do. You would have missed your name called. So sweet me, number one. It may hurt deeper to be who you are. And it could be easier to put on a facade just to get through like a numb little soldier. But you are where you need to be. And your name is called. Now go tell. Go announce it. Because sweet me, number one, you have seen the Lord. That's the first me. The second me is the one that I most often am. Thomas. This is me. This is like me all the time. Oh, precious little me, number two. All you've lived through, all the crazy, that could only be God moments. And still you doubt. And still you give God all these, well, if you just do this, then I'll believe. How does he not just wash his hands of you? Surely there are others that he could use instead of you. And yet he has patience with you. Patience over and over again. Patience that you never ever give him with his plan. Why is it that you expect unconditional understanding from him and yet you question him at every turn? And then he whispers just like a sweet dad holding his newborn baby. I don't love you because of the way you love me. I love you in spite of the way you love me. Me number two, wrestle with your faith in the uncertainty. Touch the scars in the uncertainty, but always, always, always return to his table with your feet washed clean in the uncertainty. He can handle all of it. And in spite of every question you have, believe so that you may have life in his name. Well, I'm going to finish with the last letter, and it's to this Peter, the me that I feel like Jesus knows that I can be, and I feel like I'm the first half of it, but maybe not the last half, and I want to be. I want to be the one leaping over the edge of the boat, and I want to be the one going back and telling everybody, and I want to be the one willing to die upside down. Dear me, number three, you are a mess. There, I said it. You deny, you doubt, you run and hide, you jump without thinking. See, I'm good at that first part. That first part I can relate to. And as I think through all your shenanigans, I can almost hear a soundtrack behind your every move, like a circus song, like a Three Stooges thing that just keeps framing your mess-ups. There are so many mess-ups. And yet, you are the me that he knows that I can be. I keep expecting to see some big change up in who you are, but there you are, the denying, doubting, running and hiding, jumping without thinking me, the me who seems to be the most unfixable. How can you be the one he knows that you can be? But then Jesus comes into the picture and he really sees you. I think he looks right into your eyes and he really, really, really sees you. He knows that you're afraid but you love hard. He knows that you jump without thinking, but you're always willing to jump. And when he arrives on the scene, there's no way to hide the messy places that you live. And there's no Instagram camera filter that could blot out the ugly or blur the dark edges of who you really, really are. 
Your reality is crisp and clear to him with a spotlight shining on it, all of it. And even then he arrives, no head shaking, no heavy sighs or looks of disgust. And he asks you to do one thing, feed my sheep. I see the mess. He sees a rock that can be the foundation. I want to be the me that he sees me as, redeemable, usable, a sheep feeder. Who are you? Are you a sheep feeder? Are you running back breathless and tears saying to tell everybody what you've seen, what he's done? Are you Thomas? Are you the one that says, I know that it's crazy, but I've touched the scars. What you believe about who Jesus is is the most important thing about you. And if we're not telling people and if we're not living it out outside of this room, we're not doing what he called us to do. Will you feed the sheep with him? Let's pray. Father, um, thank you that you sent your son. Thank you that you left the scars. I've never thought about that before. Like you left those tangible scars that proved his humanity. Lord, thank you for that because we need it. We have scars that tell stories and we have scars, Lord, and we want them to point to you and the glory of who you are. And so, Father, as we approach this Easter week, I pray that each of us remembers what it's about. It's not about Easter baskets and it's not about cute dresses and it's not about all these other things that we make it about. It's about you and it's about you coming and rising and standing before us with your scars. Thank you. Thank you that you love us that much. We thank you that we get to get together and talk about it and celebrate it and be here and have your word opened in a place that allows it, Father. Thank you. And we ask all of these things in your precious son's name who came and lived and died for each one of us in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.